Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. And we are embarking on yet another Film Spotting Marathon. This time, we're taking a look at six films from Vincent Minnelli. It's been a while since we have explored classic Hollywood cinema. Actually, it's not really coming to mind the last time we did anything. What are you guys saying? Hollywood. Yeah, snobs. We are. We are. Would it be, I, mean, I don't even know if this would count really, Ophels? I mean, is it mm, that long ago yeah, that we probably did so. something We from are this usually era? doing Bergman or something like that or Kislovsky. Michael, do you have a problem with that? No, no. I, I, Varda, I, what, do you, no what do you have in, against Agnes Varda? Yeah, I'm, in no, I'm no snob in that direction. I, I resent the implication. Let's just get to the can Let's we get to get to the marathon. He, <laughs> he was in fact born in Chicago, so we yes, should probably get to him. Okay, <laughs> Michael Phillips from the Chicago <laughs> Tribune is here. The professor, he's going to be playing the role of professor here to shepherd us through this Manelli marathon because you've been waiting for this for a long time. You have been urging us to do this marathon. Fill in some of these blind spots. Manelli is a favorite of yours. Yes, he is. He really is. And and you know you you mentioned Ophels, and and he's a, he's a, a visual stylist that. Manelli, I think consciously and unconsciously learned an awful lot from, and uh, and, and 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 he's just one of my favorites. I can't wait to talk about him. Okay, well, we're going to hear some sounds of Cabin in the Sky from 1943, the first movie in our Manelli marathon here in a moment. But we do want to take a moment to welcome back our presenting sponsor of this marathon. Happy to have Mubi back on board as that sponsor. Cult, classic, and independent films from around the world. Josh. No algorithm has ever cried during a tearjerker or laughed at a comedy or boldly defended a film till it was blue in the face. I've never seen it. No. Which is why an algorithm has no business choosing your films. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. Each day they introduce a new gem and you have one month to watch it. Whether it's a timeless classic, a festival darling, or an acclaimed masterpiece, each film is hand-selected by experts like Michael Phillips. They need to get Michael Phillips involved. You could be the expert to help them. Yes. Well, you know, you actually, interesting, uh, Adam, based on your recommendations just then, uh-huh. I think you would enjoy Police Academy 6, Mission <laughs> you know to me. Moscow. You know me so well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can also delve deeper into the films with exclusive interviews, video essays, and critical reviews on Mubi's notebook. So our listeners can try Mubi free for 30 days. Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I.com slash filmspotting, Mubi.com slash filmspotting. Josh, what are some current 
programming highlights that our listeners can check out over at Mubi. These are highlights for me because I have not seen either of these to Ooh. my shame. I've seen both of them. So oh, look I'm at better you. Than you. I'm Mr. better than you. You're Mr. Mubi. <laughs> yeah. As a lead up to the Oscars, they are showing Damien Chazelle's and Barry Jenkins's debut film. So, Michael, I know you are a huge fan of Damien Chazelle's Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench from 2009. Was it on your top 10 that year? I it, think was, it was. It was. And that was that was a really great surprise to catch that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that uh, they're offering that. And Desiree Garcia, who's been on this show before, speaking of Chazelle, because we talked about La La Land with her. She's a professor. I know you spoke to her a little bit in preparation for this Minnelli conversation. And she is she's Madeline. Yep, she's the co-star she's of Guy Riley. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. It's, it's great to see. It's it's great to see a, 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 what I what I think is already a pretty significant American director, Damien Chazelle, uh, right out of the gate, trying everything under the sun and pulling off about eighty five percent of it. So mm-hmm. you know, it's it's really worth saying. Mubi also has, as I mentioned, Jenkins' debut that is from two thousand eight, called Medicine for Melancholy: A Yearning Portrait of Modern Blackness in San Francisco and a Complex Romance for a Very Twenty First Century City. Adam as yeah. You know, the guy who's seen that. Mm-hmm. Is that an accurate description? It is an accurate description. Black and white, it's it's a it's a smaller film, certainly. It feels like a debut film, much in the way Guy and Madeline does compared to some of the, the bigger projects those filmmakers have tackled since, but certainly emblematic of Jenkins' work and worth seeing, yeah. I would say. Yeah, it sort of got echoes of the link later before Sunrise, yes. you know, trilogy. It does. And, and it's, it's, it's like that, that sort of conversationally driven thing. But it's, yeah, it's really sharp. And you can tell there, uh, just like with the Chazelle film, that he's going places. Yep. Again, that's movie.com slash film spotting for your 30-day trial if you want to check out some of those films and more. Let's get to a little bit of Minnelli fun. And that is why my heart is flying high, because I know we'll have a cabin in the That's Eddie Rochester Anderson and Ethel Waters in Vincent Minnelli's Cabin in the Sky. It is from 1943. It is Minnelli's debut film, and it's the debut film in our Minnelli Marathon. And, Michael, we really wanted to have you on here to kind of set the table for us, not only for the entire marathon, but for this film and our conversation about it. But first, we always like to ask our guest experts how they started on the journey to becoming experts on a certain genre or filmmaker in this case. When did you first discover and fall in love with Minnelli's work? I mean, more fan than expert, honestly, because I I, I don't think I know half as much as plenty of the Minnelli scholars out there, Uh, especially there's a fantastic book uh, by Stephen Harvey, the late Stephen Harvey, uh, that's just called Directed by Vincent Minnelli. Um, that you should seek out if you're at all interested in some of the work you might be seeing in the marathon. But, you know, I, I honestly have to, I have to give it up for public television. When I was 12 years old, there was a series that aired on public TV all across the country called The Men Who Made the Movies. Richard Schickel, the Time Magazine mm-hmm. critic, uh, put it together, produced it, and wrote the segments. They were just hour-long segments uh, in the early 70s, an awful lot, well, uh, you know, the right, the right old Hollywood directors were still around and sentient and and up for an interview. And Schickel put together programs built around the work of Hitchcock, George Cukor, Howard Hawks, all kinds of folks, and Vincent Minnelli. Now, when I was 12, I didn't know that name. I didn't know the name Vincent Minnelli. Uh, but I saw, I was crazy about movies already, and I saw this this hour 
uh, of, of interview footage with Minnelli and an awful lot of film footage and selections from the musicals and Minnelli's melodramas and a couple of the comedies. But I, I just, half hour in, I thought, this is this is my guy. I, I, I knew I loved a certain kind of musical, and Minnelli turned out to have made a couple of them that I had seen. But just to see what... I, without any kind of conscious sense of what a camera really did uh, and what a director can and should or maybe shouldn't do with a camera when filming a musical number or just a simple dramatic scene. At the end of that hour, I was I, I just felt like I had learned an incredible amount about somebody I was kind of already in love with, the hmm. stylist of the camera. And, and uh, you know, he brought such kind of huge, larger-than-life flair to all this different material. And, I mean, they showed clips from The Clock, which is a really interesting melodrama with Judy Garland and Robert Walker, which is, you know, if you had to add one or two to the marathon of six you you have going here, The Clock would be one of them for sure. I just thought Minnelli, uh, you know, had had my kind of style. And, and then figuring out what that really was and how he achieved it, you know, that's the thing I've been trying to do my whole life since. Hmm. So I know this is going to be very difficult for you, Michael, but yes. talk to us like we're clueless. Yes. Pretend we, we know nothing about cinema. <laughs> okay. We certainly pretend that we don't know anything about Minnelli. In this case, I've seen two Minnelli films coming in to Cabot in the Sky, The Bad and the Beautiful, which okay. is part of our marathon. Right. Because Josh hasn't seen it, and An American in Paris, which we have both seen, and that's why it's not part of the marathon. It was actually part of an early film spotting marathon, musicals, that Sam and I did. So with that minimal background, Mm. give us and give our listeners who might be equally or even more clueless some things to look out for as we fall in love, hopefully, with Minnelli's style. I think with Minnelli's career, you can can start figuring out what Minnelli movies might mean something to you as an individual or if he's really your kind of director – just by simply doing what we do when we're younger, or really what we do kind of at, at, at the core of all our movie-going interests, which is follow the people on the screen. You know, if you like Fred Astaire, you can certainly check out uh, a couple of Fred Astaire movies. One is the strangest film he ever made, and the biggest flop, one of the biggest flops Minnelli ever made, Yolanda and the Thief, which is a complete train wreck of this n- n- nutball fantasy, uh, but it has one or two amazing numbers in it, you know. And there's a lot in Min- Minnelli's career where you can say that sentence over and over, you know. A, a musical or a musical review, in the case of Ziegfeld Follies, which was made just not that long after Cabin in the Sky, that, you know, two-thirds of it is, eh, maybe half of it, is kind of junk and direct. But there's a number, you know, there's, among other things, there's a dance number. It's the only time for, of Astaire and Kelly dance together in in their heyday. That's just fantastic. And, uh, you know, and then, okay, you watch it. You watch it for the talent. And now, then you start to look at what Minnelli's doing with the with all the stuff that goes into the definition of mise-en-scene, right? What What's up with that? specific color blue in the sky you know why 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 is the camera able to do that kind of mobile interaction with the dancers you know what why what taught Manelli exactly when to kind of fling this boom this crane way up and get get the group shot and then down without a cut to get to pick up a stare maybe in Lucille Bremer you know his dance partner and Yolanda and Ziegfeld Follies you know and pick that up without cutting a lot of it it's just the satisfaction that I I appreciate more and more now, all these years into my movie-going life, of just watching what a real 
highly trained master can do with a moving camera and and how Manelli can take something like um, uh, a James Jones novel, which was terrible, apparently. I've never read it. Some came running. And turn it into this potent, first-rate melodrama with with strange kind of lacings of comedy in it. With, uh, this is the one with Fra- Frank Sinatra, Shirley MacLaine, Dean Martin. And uh, he's taking the same kind of visual approach to the uh, to a melodrama, but keeping everything in very kind of enclosed spaces until you get like a fairground sequence. It's all shot in central Indiana, too, so it's location work. In addition to that, you have lighting and sort of a scenic design that really feels like it's still got one foot in backlot Hollywood. So you don't really know if it's real or if it's fantasy. And that's Manelli in a nutshell. Hmm. You're always kind of toggling between... Um, uh, an idealized dream world and sort of the bittersweet real world, right? And that's the that there's two key dichotomies in his work. Right? That's one of them. The other one is is so many of his stories, uh, whether they're set in modern day or or uh, period, or if it's a musical or a melodrama or a comedy, are about a kind of a, a very basic tension between the challenges and difficulties of romantic life and a private life versus the challenges and difficulties and then the solace of pouring yourself into your work. So it's all hmm. it's all this sort of, it's all this kind of work life balance stuff which uh, my wife columnist uh, Heidi Stevens who writes the work life balance column uh, balancing act for the Tribune She's would, prob- figured would, it out. would probably enjoy Manoli, yeah for this yeah. reason but <laughs> you know that's the thing I think about musicals and this is this is where we can get into cabin in the sky that that Schickle PBS series also excerpted exactly the right two or three numbers from Cabin in the Sky to get me hooked and make me wonder, what is this? this you know, I knew something about what an all-black musical was and, you know, what uh, there's not that many of them in the, in the late 20s, 30s, and 40s, just a handful. But uh, this one looked different and a little better than the stuff I had seen before and a little less racially egregious and patronizing and humiliating <laughs> in terms of the stereotypes. It's all there under the surface. And for a lot of people... It's it's too much present and too uncomfortable to watch in 2018 anyway. But that's something I want to talk about with you guys. But that what I saw in Cabin in the Sky was amazing talent uh, being given uh, a rare opportunity to do what they could in front of a camera, and still you have to kind of reconcile that with the discomfort a lot of the material causes people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and for me, the talent absolutely wins out when you're watching Cabin in the Sky. I think that the cast had to... There were two hurdles here, right? There is that uh, those elements that still register today, I think you can say is blatantly racist, that these performers are ask to an act in this storyline. But there's also this sense of, I guess it's almost condescending paternalism. There's that title at the very beginning saying something about how uh, we made this movie to respect other cultures or to explore other mm-hmm. cultures. And you get the sense that in 43, you know, this this probably was considered by the people who made it a progressive act of diversity, right? But at the same time, that lends a sort of paternalism that the cast has to overcome in addition to the racism that's part of the story and part of the characterizations. And man, once you give Ethel Waters the microphone – And she grabs a hold of this story and does what she wants with this character she's been given and mostly gets to move and sing. 
she leaps a lot of that for me. I mm-hmm. mean, that was this was really my first encounter with her as a performer on screen, and I was just astounded. She's so, great. Yeah, know. Michael, why don't you set up a little bit more specifically the plot here? What is yeah, the story what, so, of so, Captain Man- in the so, Sky? Manelli, I'll go back two, two years earlier. So Manelli uh, was a big, a big Broadway director at the time and uh, had started in Chicago. He worked 10 years in Chicago earlier as a, first a costume designer, then a scenic designer, and that's how he developed his visual eye. And before that, he was a window dresser at Marshall Fields. So that's, that's where he first learned how to you know, create images and scenery for a mm-hmm. proscenium stage, yeah. right? Perfect training. It's a frame, essentially. Perfect training. And, and, uh, and he was an artist before that. So by the time he's a big Broadway director, he gets a call from MGM Come on out. Let's. Why don't you learn the trade? Uh, okay. So for two years, Manelli just sort of you know like is a is a, a rolling kind of like idea man for hire, helping out on this project, that project, but no real responsibilities. And then he goes to New York and uh, on a shopping trip. The MGM folks said, hey, there's this all-black musical, Cabin in the Sky. It's got great talent in it. This, you know, it was a medium hit. Actually, it wasn't that big a hit, but Ethel Waters was in it. And Rex Ingram, who in the film as well, uh, plays the devil, right? So two of the big Broadway stars of Cabin in the Sky made the jump to the movie. But they thought, okay, this is a good vehicle for Minnelli's first directorial effort. You know, he's, it's a musical. It's perfect for our new hire, Minnelli. You know, he's our new contract director. So... That's that's where it starts, and it's a it's a it's a it's a very old. Even at the time, it was a quaint and kind of cloying old school quote Negro folktale unquote. And in the story, you have Ethel Waters playing Petunia, the wife of Little Joe, played by uh, Eddie Rochester Anderson, Jack Benny's old sidekick. This is in the movie, and he's uh, you know this is this is where it's very uncomfortable to even discuss what how you have to describe the character. He's a shiftless no account, as they keep calling him. He's you know he's prone to dice games and yep. gambling. And at the beginning of the story, he is shot and mortally wounded because because of a gambling argument, and then. In this delirium, right, he's visited in a fever dream by uh, the Lord and the devil, right? And they're going to fight for his soul. So it's a Faustian, you know, yes. it's fighting for his soul, right? And so he's got six months to do the right thing. And both uh, the devil and the Lord who appear, you know, on, as, as, pers- as persona in this, in this little folktale, uh, try to win the battle for his soul, right? And the devil throws him all kinds of temptations, primarily... Sweet Georgia Brown played in the movie by Lena Horne, right? So, and 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 an unbelievable talent, I'd say, just just like Ethel Waters, you just sort of relax into the unbelievable talent of mm-hmm. this of this musical performer, right? And that's that's at at its best, Cabin in the Sky makes room for the for the talent it has and kind of carves the stereotypes and the more uh, you know the 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 more kind of wince worthy. Um, I- images out of the way and yeah. just sort of makes room for the song and dance, but the right kind of song and dance, yeah. you know. And um, there was only a handful of movies, as I said, that were uh, what some people call black cast movies in the cinema. It started back in 29 with Hallelujah, King Vidor film, and, uh, you know, there was a all-black uh, film called Green Pastures in 36 that also came from the stage, but... Cabin in the Sky in 43, same year as Stormy Weather, the Bill Bojangles Robinson vehicle, which had the Nicholas Brothers in it. You know, again, great talent. That film's even kind of more uncomfortable in some ways than Cabin in the Sky. But I think 
Cabin in the Sky is worth seeing just because you see instantly in the best sequences what Minnelli has learned, two-year apprenticeship, just to figure out, okay, this is how I'm going to move the camera. The camera does not sit still. You know, it used to sit still and simply record a performer like Astaire or Rogers or, you know, anybody. And, and mm-hmm. then just, well, well, not, you know, it just, just sit still and behave was sort of the camera, <laughs> you know, attitude of most directors. But Minnelli was really not the first, but the best of sort of the second wave of Hollywood's musical directors to figure out, okay, I'm going to, it's going to, it's going to stay here and then it's going to follow this set of dancers and then it's going to pivot. 35, 45 degrees and pick up this line along the curb on the sidewalk. I'm thinking of my favorite minute in The Cabin in the Sky, which is late in the film. Um, it's a nightclub sequence featuring the Duke Ellington Orchestra. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's simply, uh, it's called Big, Big Jim's Paradise, I think. Is, mm-hmm. is the that name sounds of, right. Is the name of the club. And it's... it's Jim it's, Henry's Paradise. Jim, I'm sorry, yeah, Jim Henry's Paradise. And it's the way Minnelli just sort of simply deals with the the dancing chorus of like different couples sort of moving on to the center of the frame and then sort of on an angle sort of into the club. And and the camera stays outside for quite a little while because the action is so good Mm -hmm. and every single dancing couple is so differentiated from the previous one. And uh, you're just getting, you sort of just watch it and you're kind of subtly astonished and then... The fifth couple goes in, and the door is open, and then you're inside, and you got you know there's Duke Ellington at the piano, and then uh-huh. you got a jitterbug number, and it's kind of like three fantastic minutes, and you can't believe it's the guy's first film. Yeah, and he does it all in about three shots. You know, it's like a, you know, some shots are really long, some shots are shorter, but uh, I don't know. You, you just you just see a certain kind of style that not um, not every director, and in fact, most directors doing musicals in 1943 never learned that kind of camera technique. Mm-hmm. So this guy was a natural, and he, you know, his theatrical training was the perfect warm-up for his cinematic debut. Yeah, that nightclub sequence is where the technical wizardry really comes through. What I was expecting to get from Minnelli, you see touches of it throughout. I'm sure we'll talk about some of them, but that's where it really did stand out for me. And we've heard your thoughts. We've heard some of Josh's before we get to anything I may have to say. Let's actually hear from a listener because we got a really good voicemail that honestly, I don't have much to say after it. It kind of sums up my overall general thoughts on the film. Nathaniel, he's in South Bend, very smart listener with some thoughts on Cabin in the Sky. Hey, Adam and Josh, Nathaniel here from South Bend. I just watched Cabin in the Sky and I'll be interested to hear your thoughts. For me, on the one hand, it was pretty incredible to see its all black cast. And apparently this was one of six films shot between 1927 and 1954 to feature all-black performers. I found Ethel Waters' performance to be especially breathtaking. At first it was almost tender and maternal, and then incredibly wild and sensual in that film's amazing final nightclub scene. On the other hand, yeah, the film is definitely a relic of its time. Coming off of Black Panther only weeks ago, I found Cabin in the Sky fairly cringeworthy in its discernibly white representation of black life and culture, even if it was well-intentioned. Still, I thought the nightclub scene at the end was incredible and clearly indicative of Minnelli's talents. Even the opening tracking shot through the church was pretty thrilling. Finally, I thought one potential critique that could be lodged against this film is that it clearly takes some of its narrative beats and imagery from The Wizard of Oz, but I also wondered if, maybe on the plus side, 
Cabin in the Sky helped pave the way for something like Pal and Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death. Anyway, guys, looking forward to hearing your thoughts. And don't forget to remind Michael Phillips while he's there that his opinion of Raiders of the Lost Ark is completely absurd. See ya. <laughs> Here we go. With a rebuttal. <laughs> you got a rebuttal, Michael? Phillips with a rebuttal. <laughs> You know, I like that voicemail a lot. I thought uh-huh. that was a lot. He had a lot of great insights yep. on Manelli, and you know, it's it's. Did he had to ruin it? He, you know, at the end there with that Raiders of the Lost Ark thing, <laughs> it just, it's going to haunt you. Uh, yeah, yeah. yep, uh, you're going to regret that's ever right. saying that on the show, Michael. But Nathaniel nails a few things there. He mentions, and this has been touched on, that the movie, as Nathaniel said, is a relic of its time. There are some cringe-worthy moments, but at the same time, there is something. Incredible. There is something striking about it being this all black cast. He said one of only six films between 1927 and 54 that did that, 54 being a key year because that was the year the Supreme Court desegregated schools. So this is a rare creature, this right. movie, it Cabin was... in the Sky, absolutely. And then Ethel Waters, Josh, you mentioned how great she is. Well, Louis Armstrong. And Louis Armstrong, too. And I want to touch on that because you mentioned the talent, and that's such a key part of this. And I do like what Nathaniel said about it taking maybe some narrative energy from Wizard of Oz. But also, I thought about Powell and Pressburger, too. I don't, I don't think you can watch this film and not think about a matter of life and death and that, that dichotomy of the afterlife and the, the mortal world. And actually, Michael, while you were talking about Minnelli and that dichotomy, I realized that it's maybe not the same type of dichotomy here as what you described in his other films. And yet there is one. It is this this battle between these two worlds, between not not the the home life and the romantic life and the work life in this case, but the home life and romantic life, the sinful life maybe, or the temptations of that life yeah. and the virtuous life, right? That's that's the right. the dichotomy at play here in Cabin in the Sky. It's either God-fearing or sin-loving. Exactly. You know? it, now, it doesn't work out both ways. I did not know much about this film when I started watching it other than it was an all-black cast, and you had actually warned us a little bit that maybe this wasn't the best Minnelli film to start with. Well, it's a risk. It's a risk proceeded. because some people, you know, rightly so, yep. are, are just really, are really not going to not going to want to put up with a lot of what this film's trading. No, and, and and I get that. I think I will say that based on that, the movie struck me as. Not as blatantly offensive, maybe, as I thought it was going to be. Right. No doubt the, the general characterization of these yes, characters, yeah. it's undeniably and unfortunately in keeping with a classic Hollywood portrayal of African-Americans and their culture. You touched on some of this, but everyone is some combination of churchin, drinkin, two-timing, singing, dancing, gambling smiling There's a lot of smiling yep. in this movie. It is this kind of Southern folklore. But... But again, it is this all-black cast, and I think the one thing that did stand out to me is the fact that even if ultimately this movie was made somehow for predominantly white audiences and made by white people, and so maybe they were trying to make those performances and that culture more palatable perhaps for mainstream red white audiences, they aren't standing in comparison to to this other culture there are no other there are no white people in the film to to no, it's a compl- to, it is a completely right, segregated to give it that distinction where it's all a of a sudden it's like, segregated well work, they're yeah. this way and the white people are this way and this is the the better way or the more virtuous way it's not like that at all so it feels less and, and Josh you said this it feels less like exploitation to me and more of a genuine if misguided attempt ultimately to celebrate black culture and that's manifested 
in a variety of ways, and one of them is these special appearances that pop up in the movie. It's as if Minnelli got together and said, I'm going to showcase the very best right. of this culture, well, this is why, this the is, biggest this stars. This is why in this small southern town suddenly Duke, <laughs> All of a sudden, yes. Duke Ellington, Duke Ellington shows up, and, and it is Duke Ellington playing himself. And he's then, fantastic. And he, he, is, he is fantastic. But we do get Louis Armstrong playing a character, yeah. one of the devil's minions here. We get not only the stars in Eddie Anderson and Ethel Waters, but we get Lena Horne, and we get Bill Bailey doing an incredible tap number in a scene with Ethel and Eddie Anderson at their house where they all three do perform in that. And and he kind of just shows up as a friend who otherwise, as I recall, isn't really in the movie. He doesn't have any other lines, but he's there to do this incredible tap dance. Yeah, it's a little bit like a vaudeville, like now we'll have this number. Exactly. This is exactly how the Broadway material worked, too, and a lot of Broadway musicals worked. They they weren't really sophisticated blends of song, song and story. You know, it was just more like, Okay, what can you do? Yes. <laughs> you know? But can I give you an example where it does work that way? And sure. it's, it's actually my favorite sequence in the film. This is during the nightclub scene. And we have this back and forth between, at this point, Little Joe has left Petunia. Okay, and he's moved on with Georgia Brown. Petunia comes into the nightclub all, all dialed glam, up. All glammed up, right? <laughs> yeah. And here's where story gag, absolutely yeah. comes into play. Because she goes right up to... Georgia Brown, and they're giving each other the side eye. And Georgia Brown says, I'm speaking my mind at one point. Petunia returns, and I don't hear a sound. (laughs) And then she announces, not long after, I suddenly feel a musical urge. And this is, I mean, you talk about representation, okay? Now you have the larger-than-life, full-bodied churchwoman. You don't see that on screen Getting a dance sequence like mm-hmm. this. Right. And she puts, loose. she puts the slender lady of the night. I mean, Horn's talent is great. This character, I don't think, is as good as. No, she's just, as she's just a gold digger. If she's you, just and a gold it's digger. It's a tired stereotype. But man, for sure. does this full bodied church woman put this slender woman of the night to shame on the dance floor? That's great. And, and the that fact number, that yeah. Manelli just yeah. lets that. That's play Honey out. in the Honeycomb? Is yeah, Honey in the Honeycomb, which is oh a great, great song. Amazing and... moment. Oh, there's honey. In the peach, there's candy in a coconut shell, and mussels on every beach. Oh, there's money in the savings bank, and I'll personally guarantee if there's honey in the honeycomb, then baby, look out, there's love in me. And and she gets, and Ethel Waters gets to do it with John Bubbles, who is one of the great and not a not a name most people know these days, but a wonderful uh, uh, tap dancer and just a real interesting uh, dance stylist, almost as good as uh, Bill Robinson, really. But uh, uh, it's it's great, you know. You appreciate a movie like this if you like musicals, and especially you have to like a certain kind of folk musical uh, because it's preserving the talent these people had and. In the case of Waters, it's letting her recreate a stage role. But mm. that minute and a half, and that's all it is. That, yeah. that, like for example, that minute and a half, Honey in the Honeycomb was the was the first number that Schickel used in that old documentary huh. back in '73. Oh. And I was like, no "That's it, I'm in. I'm a Minnelli fan, you <laughs> right. know, and right. and I love Ethel Waters, and I love this song, and who wrote this song, you know, and, and all all the questions started. Yep. So I can see that, and I think that probably is if you're just being really honest and trying to be as objective as possible the best sequence in the film without a doubt and yet just in terms of a little moment that wowed me 
it's in the sequence with Bill Bailey doing the tap dance number, followed by – and Ethel Waters has performed before that. They're at the house. And then we get Eddie Anderson doing this song during Taking a Chance on Love. And the he dance starts is great. to dance the dance around the kitchen. Yeah. And at one point, he it's like his, his, uh, his backside catches on fire, and then he's got to sit in the sink so yeah. he can cool off. But the way he moves – and I've never seen Eddie Anderson move before. I've never seen a movie that he's in or any other clips. I don't know what his dance style is. But the way he moves in that frame, there's just a, a, a slide that he does, this glide that he does. It almost – like I had to rewind it to be like, what? No, How is great. he moving? What is, really what is he doing? Yeah. It's, and, and, and Minnelli with his camera, he, you're right, Michael. He's moving the camera. It's not as if he's just letting it unfold. But it's not so fussy that it's in any way – getting in the way of those dance moves and he's always filming Anderson in a full body shot so we're watching those legs and feet move at all times. It's absolutely unique and it also speaks to characterization where the performances redeem what could be these stereotypical caricatures because we have to see how little Joe, I mean this all hinges on Petunia genuinely loving little Joe, right? It's actually her prayers that get him the extra six months, right? It's it's when these two figures hear her, they say, all right, we'll give him another six right, months. Right. And so what? what is that based on? Well, you have to see what she sees in him. Mm-hmm. And giving him that dance number, we can understand that. I also think, you know, the title song, Cabin in the Sky, a duet between them, some things about it, you're like, oh, this, this is, you know, kind of condescending and hokey. But the way they play it, you can see two things, that their character is genuinely in love. And also you see the friction at the heart of this marriage mm-hmm. and why they have the trouble they do because yep. her vision of, you know, how life should be is completely at odds with his. And so in this nice number together, you get a sense of their relationship. You do. Yeah. And I, when I talked to uh, Desiree Garcia about Cabin in the Sky, she she said some things that Nathaniel uh, was right on point with too, I think, that – you know, you have you have a lot of overlap with The Wizard of Oz, which was filmed just the year or two before Cabin in the Sky on the same studio sets. And you have a similar setup in that you have childlike characters gone wrong. They, you know, they, they go to a scary place, but then they find out they belong at home. Now, that works a little easier today if you're watching what is supposed to be a, a teenage, you know, girl as opposed to a full-grown adult male, okay? And that's mm-hmm. where the condescension and the patronization comes in. There's no question about it. It's hard, it's hard to watch some of it. But uh, And, in fact, they use some of the same tornado footage, just some of the exact same footage. <laughs> yeah. In, you know, and that's in the, that climax, It's the yeah. same, you know, it's MGM repurposing its footage, right? But <laughs> now some of that, you know, it's those... Toto's fo- dance moves are incredible. <laughs> incredible, incredible. <laughs> those folkloric trappings are what kind of, you know, Manelli did the best he could with them. And you can feel, I think you can feel Manelli being hemmed in by, you know, a story that sort of has this very narrow image of the rural South and it doesn't really allow the characters much agency, as people say, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and even in the movie that came out the same year, Stormy Weather, you have at least some sense of, okay, where did the Great Migration actually allow these people to travel? You know, that's more of a big city up north, you know, musical of and where the black talent can kind of, you know, grow and develop in some different ways at least. Cabin in the Sky is really <laughs> a throwback. Even back in 43, it was a throwback, right? Nonetheless, I think what you learn here is what uh, an intelligent and and sensitive director who happened to be white, could find a way to bring out 
I think, a variety of talent in a variety of ways. Uh, and it happened to be all African-American talent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he didn't do anything to try to mess with the, you know, if you want to call it the integrity of the original piece. He didn't try to... He didn't try to push the comedy, which is, I think, crucial to why the film is interesting today. And he didn't want to get in the way of people like Ethel Waters and Lena Horne, mm-hmm. who he who he had respected for years as a stage director in New York and worked with all with a lot of yeah. them. So you know, he he did a lot. Manelli did everything to get Lena Horne's image cemented and developed on screen. You know, and, and it was MGM that dropped the ball on Lena Horne. Now credit where credit's due, and you can speak to this more than we can. But according to Wikipedia, anyway, we need to give credit for the shine sequence at the end of this to Busby Berkeley. Oh yes, it's yeah. uncredited, but he did. He stepped he did in, direct that, or stepped in for some portion. Yeah, of he that. did. He did. It might. It might have been. I forget the ex- exact timeline on that, but you know, right from the beginning, Minnelli, as a contract MGM director, uh, you know, would fill in for other people uh, if if there was a conflict or just something needed punching up. Even in his own movies, mm-hmm. when he was well established. You get a, the film he won his only directing Oscar for, Gigi, much later, 1958. You know, he was off working on the next project, and they didn't, you know, the studio didn't like a couple of scenes, and they sent in, I think it was George Sidney, you know, who was like a solid MGM director, but, you know, kind of a B-level guy to come in and restage some numbers mm-hmm. and, or, or shoot some additional footage. I think when it came to restaging stuff he had already shot, that's where Minnelli drew the line. Yeah. But, you know, it, it you know, you come and go. I mean, that's, you know, he, he dropped out of Kismet for a while, which is a terrible uh, musical and a really, a real stiff, instructive, I think, too, in the context of this marathon and maybe any marathon to see the director you're focusing on to see them really struggle with material and turn in a genuine flop. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just to watch a musical like Kismet, which really does kind of nail the camera to the floor and just sit there visibly bored, you know, in this in this horrible cinemascope frame that Manelli never really know how to work with, and a boring musical to boot, Kismet, with exactly one decent song in it. And, you know, Manelli, you can almost hear him snoring behind the camera. And he couldn't wait to get off the set and let somebody else finish a couple of numbers. Mm. So, you know, that's how it was at MGM. So one choice he made in Cabin in the Sky with the moving camera that I do want to note comes really early on. And, yeah, this scene of a whisper, a bit of gossip that he follows from a face in the front row. Love that scene. Who turns to the person behind him. And we see people singing, popping up. Yeah, it's a very busy shot. And the camera goes over the congregation and follows the whisper from row to row all the way to the back of the church. And there's an instance where absolutely did not have to do that. It wasn't a musical number. It's really just staging the plot, getting the plot into gear a little bit. But that choice, you know, it does a number of things. It's not only the excitement of the movement, but it also paints the picture of this community. Mm -hmm. It makes us realize right away there's not going to be a white face in this thing. And in a good way, because that that scene is not Again, there's not the wrong kind of comedy is not happening in that scene. No, you know, it's not like it's it's a, yeah. it's a lightly humorous, you know, observation of small town gossip traveling. Right, right. And yeah, it's just a lovely touch early on. You see, wow, first film, first few minutes almost, mm-hmm. and he's got it going. I think, I think the other the other key thing visually that he did get right with Cabin in the Sky is this idea of okay, how am I going to indicate the presence. Of the supernatural in this story. So here's little Joe, you know, kind of like half out of his head at death's door, right? And then how are we going to indicate the arrival of, 
you know, the devil, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and then, so it's very simple solutions. You get this, you know, with the curtains, you get the oil lamp that goes out. Yep. And then you get a lighting change, which is completely theatrical, you know, straight yeah. out of a Broadway technique. But it works great on yep. screen. And then, you know, these are all very simple kind of building blocks, but you put it all together and it really, you know, it, it gave the audience the right kind of shiver. And it still works. Hmm. So I'm overjoyed that we are moving on to Meet Me in St. Louis next week from 1944 because, finally, Sam Van Halgren can't make me feel guilty about it anymore. He adores this film, and Mm. I'm finally going to see what all the fuss is about. Desiree Garcia says this, Cabin in the Sky, great example of a folk musical of a certain type. Uh Meet Me in St. Louis, the greatest of all folk musicals, period. Okay. If you want to look at it that way. I'm excited, and hopefully all the listeners out there are as well. The Bandwagon, Michael, you mentioned, is the fourth film in the marathon. Some Came Running, you mentioned, is the final film in the marathon. You will definitely be back at least one more time. That Some Came Running show, and maybe when we do our Minnelli Awards as well, we share our best picture, our favorite Minnelli moment. We'll obviously have to pick some kind of great camera move in there as well. So this should be... A great marathon. We hope you are going to follow along. You can see the entire lineup just by going to filmspotting.net slash marathons or click on marathons right there on the main page. And you're getting this little bonus podcast here a few days ahead of the normal show. We are publishing our traditional film spotting episode on Friday where we're going to get into, I know, Michael's favorite time of the year, film spotting madness, the 1990s edition. (laughs) The bracket is back. No Raiders of the Lost Ark to worry about. All right. right. But some good stuff from the 90s that we are going to pair against each other and try to crown one film, one 90s film will reign supreme. And then we're going to get into Annihilation, the new film from Alex Garland with some, some bonus Spoiler talk there. Yeah, where, 20 where minutes we or so. The movie. I mean, we do. I, much, I think I we, think yeah, <laughs> we nailed it by the end of it. Out. So, yeah, look forward to that and look forward to the next film in our marathon. Thanks for listening. Oh, honey in the honeycomb and baby, there's love. Love. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.